I'm going to be chairing this morning's session. I think I'll start by just saying, well, the unit started 15 years ago, and it really started not in Oxford, it started in London. Um, we, uh, there were a small number of us who used to meet at uh, uh, UK Gov, um, at the Foresight Think Tank, and then we said, well, actually, there doesn't seem to be any centre uh, for obesity uh, studies in Oxford. And, uh, you know, people... You know, I said, oh, Menard, yes, it would be nice, yes, it would be nice. And then I, I, I took, uh, took the initiative. And in fact, the first seminar series, when we, we got started, we had um, various people, including Debbie Sridhar, including uh, Avner Offer, the economist. Uh, we did the first seminar series to say, well, you know, uh, obesity, what kind of problem? And so everybody gave their seminar from their perspective. What do they see obesity as being a problem? So it started off as being a kind of syncretic group who's trying to pull uh, pull things together uh, across different fields. And there was huge, there is huge amounts of goodwill. And as, as time went on, um, we found that we were dealing increasingly with non-medical aspects of obesity. But, you know, the ones that seemed to be getting less attention, uh, but actually were hugely important if, if we were to consider this um, seriously as a as a societal issue, um, so you know, I never expected we get to fifteen years, and I'm quite happy that we are still here at fifteen years and thriving. I should say, thriving with uh, some amazing outputs, uh, which some of which will be reflected today, um, and uh, and an amazing network of hugely talented people uh, working on what seems to be a very wicked problem. So I just want to thank you all um, um, for being here. Thank everybody who's participated in the group, including everybody who's given seminars across the years. Um, with that, I'll hand, uh, hand over to Caroline. Thanks, and um, good morning, afternoon, evening, everybody, wherever you are. <laughs> um, it's, it's really fantastic to see this group of people convening, and then we'll have others joining us for the afternoon session. Um, I, I should say, you know, my vested interest in this unit is that um, it started my academic career. So um, in those early seminars that Stanley mentioned, I had just finished my PhD and um, got in touch with Stanley just to say, oh, hello, I'm, you know, going to be looking for jobs and might I ask you for a reference? And he said, well, if you're looking for, for things, do you, do you want to come to my seminars that I'm <laughs> running this term and we're applying for some funding? Um, and so I uh, started working within the unit as the first postdoc in, in 2007 when we were just getting everything up and running, getting um, a first website, which is not nearly as good as the one we have now, up, um, but just trying to build the network and think about the kinds of projects that we would do. So um, it's great to see, I mean, you know, some of the original collaborators, um, Kaushik, uh, Mache, uh, you know, we've had, some, we've had some people here who have been you know, collaborators and sending their, you know, work and goodwill um, since the very beginning. And it's also great to see how the network has grown um, across the last 15 years. Um, so just to say it's, a, it's a wonderful for me um, to have been part of all of this. I've had different phases where I've been more or less actively involved, um, but it's been great to come back in um, to some of the, the more recent projects, more recent years. Um, so welcome all, and I, I think it's going to be a, a great day. Hey, Kareem, you're part of all of this. Yes, so I would like to join Stanley and Caroline in welcoming everyone and just to say a few words about today's talks. Um, so the talks will invite us to look back at some of the innovative work that's been done um, at UBVO and by its international fellows um, over the years. But also importantly, um, the celebration is about recognizing UBVO's ethos 
of encouraging multidisciplinary and creative approaches to research. So I feel like it's also about inviting all of us to reflect on how UBVO can build on these foundations and grow toward at least 15 more exciting years of research collaboration. We can move to the first speaker, who is uh, Maciej Henneberg at uh, the University of Adelaide. Welcome, Maciej. Thank you, Stanley, and thank you, everyone. It's a great pleasure to see you all here. And as we are talking about time, I will start from, as we are talking about time, from saying that I met Stanley for the first time in 1994. It was at Cambridge. <laughs> but <laughs> since we were in touch, so what I'll be talking about is my uh, published experience in the last 25 years. And uh, the summary of this was published some time ago, saying obesity is a natural consequence of human evolution. So here we, here we go. Uh, the rich obesity is that accumulation of fat in the adipose tissue is the result of metabolic processes. These processes, as any biological characteristic, are variable uh, individuals and through time, but the important thing is not everyone is the same. Thus, some people may accumulate more fat than others, given the same energy intake and energy expenditure. Human metabolism has been shaped by the evolution that is still ongoing. Evolution changes gene frequencies between generations. Hence, my studies of metabolic causes of obesity are related to evolutionary adaptations, changes in evolutionary pressures, and current human variation. And they integrate understanding of heritable and ecological background of obesity. And I'm sorry to overwhelm with the slide, but this is how it started. <laughs> so human adaptations to meat eating, they're going back minimum two million years. We simply are biologically set up to use meat as one of the staple nutrients in our diet. <laughs> it's also uh, proven or evidenced by the fact that some tenid parasites like tapeworms are adapted to cycling only through humans as the definitive host. So they would have disappeared had they not been able to enter our bodies with meat we eat. And uh, then quite, uh, uh, quite uh, by chance, I stumbled across this alanine transaminase individual variation, which uh, is a good marker of body mass increase in healthy males who studied on 45,000, I think, uh, Swiss conscripts. And alanine transaminase removes the amine group from um, uh, amino acid, and then amino acid can be broken up into pyruvates and enter the, uh, the, the citric acid cycle, the Krebs cycle, and so be then converted to fat. And uh, this led us to this paper, Modern Diet and Metabolic Variation, 
saying that although we are adapted to eating meat and then converting meat to energy, as well as obviously using amino acids as body building, but uh, we now added in uh, our application of agriculture seven thousand years ago, we added carbohydrates and eventually fats and then the meat becomes a surplus in terms of energy production in our body because it takes longer obviously for meat to be converted into pyruvates than carbohydrates <laughs> and this then adds to the total energy in our body and so it is uh, as bad as eating sugar we have shown this in our study with Wen Peng Yu, uh, 2016, that uh, meat is as bad as sugar when we correlated with obesity across 180 countries. We got World Health Organization data for the entire world, and we did the so-called ecological analysis, and it turned out that meat is uh, contributing to obesity in various countries to the same extent as sugar consumption. And this year, we eventually published a paper showing that total meat intake is associated with life expectancy. And association is, uh, sorry, I don't know what happened. Association is positive. So moving on, then other uh, nutrients. So introduction of carbohydrates, we don't have to discuss much of this, but in wheat, there is a lot of gluten, and the gluten consumption in ecological analysis is also contributing to obesity worldwide. And the other aspect is soy consumption. Why soy consumption uh, correlates in worldwide analysis with obesity? Because soy contains estrogens, and estrogens obviously change our metabolic balance and therefore estrogens also contribute to the increase of obesity and another aspect of all this is that uh, in our guts the, there is a fiber converted into the short-chain fatty acids and those are then absorbed and they eventually trigger thermogenesis and thermogenesis uses more energy so just another aspect then with stanley <laughs> we did studies of body frame saying simply humans have small gut compared to other primates but some humans have bigger guts than others and we found a correlation between the size of the abdominal cavity and the level of fatness level so the thickness of skin folds. And then with Tegan, we continued the study on children in Africa. And even in children, there is the correlation between the overall size of their trunk and the adiposity. So children with bigger trunk volume have greater uh, skin folds. So that's the last slide. The, question why obesity is increasing. Well, we obviously know the economic and ecological reasons. However, we found a strange relationship. 
this is for Polish data, it's from this paper. This is the overweight. This is obesity. This is underweight. But they all increased through the end of the 20th century, whereas caloric consumption has not changed at all. So the question then is why there is this increase. And in the study of huge data on Swiss conscripts, what we found is that in the 19th century, this was the, the blue one, this was the distribution of body mass index. And in this century, 2014, there is this red distribution of body mass index. It's not that body mass index distribution has been shifted upwards. What happened was there is more individuals at both ends of the distribution, but the fat end of the distribution is pulling it more than the lower end, because obviously a person cannot be thinner than this skeleton. So <laughs> we can add. So there is increase in the range of variation of body mass index and increasing variation is a classic result of relaxed natural selection because most of natural selection is a stabilizing selection. Therefore, as we relax selection, there is an increase in variation. And here we are talking about the variation of results of metabolic processes and uh, it affects the increase of obesity as well. And thank you very much for your attention. Thank you so much, Matze. Okay, next speaker is Amy McLennan, um, Australian National University, University of Oxford and University of South Australia. So Amy, um, tell us about obesity and the chronic inflammation epidemic. Just a first thanks to everybody who's put this um, program together, both behind the scenes and um, Stanley, Caroline and Corrine. It's a really exciting program and I cannot believe it's been 15 years already. Um, I wanted to begin quickly by acknowledging that I'm coming at you today from the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples in Canberra and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Um, I've been with the UBVO since 2007, um, which has been a really incredible journey. And at the time we started to see early conversations about the link between obesity and inflammation. And I have never been interested in inflammation but I might be changing my mind. So today I wanted to offer something a little bit speculative rather than retrospective. So it's the summer of 2021, a vendor at the Fishwick food markets here stops me waving a pineapple. Try these pineapples, they're acid free. They were on a TV documentary, one of only two anti-inflammatory fruits. You have to taste it. Undeterred by the full box of produce I had in my arms, he sliced off a piece of the dripping fruit, balanced it on an apple in front of me and sent me on my way. Now, this was not the first time I'd heard of inflammation recently. Weeks earlier, I had been diagnosed with endometriosis, which is a really common but poorly understood inflammatory condition. And obesity, a topic we here have collectively researched for many years, has been increasingly linked to chronic inflammation resulting from stress, socioeconomic quality, inequality rather, um, including via early life maternal exposure. And these are all topics that are really familiar to us here at the UBBO. So this has started to get my attention. But is inflammation really that big a deal? And that's where I set off next. It has a really long history in medicine, 
and the economy. Um, the market for anti-inflammatory pharmaceuticals amounts to billions of dollars annually, and it was in the news in The Guardian, in fact, again today. Um, and a really mixed bag of things falls into the single category of chronic inflammatory conditions. So obesity, asthma, heart disease, irritable bowel, Alzheimer's, cancer, arthritis, COPD, endometriosis, stroke, diabetes, AIDS, fibromyalgia, and many of these are becoming increasingly common. So much so that in 2021, researchers argued that metabolic and inflammatory disorders are increasing at alarming rates, and they are some of the most significant biomedical urgencies of our time. We're witnessing, they suggest, a chronic inflammation epidemic. Now, alongside that, inflammation is also increasingly common in public conversations. So nutrition podcasts at the moment are full of advice about anti-inflammatory diets, and we're starting to see governments being urged to promote an anti-inflammatory lifestyle at individual, local, and national levels. And this includes, uh, wait for it, intervening in diet, physical activity, stress, sleep, public infrastructure, and socioeconomic disparities. Does that sound familiar? So for me, this is where things really get interesting because when something non-infectious is framed as an epidemic and especially with some of the language around it, it really invites attention, especially when inflammation is a cultural construct and one surrounded by contradictions and reframings. Well, like what? Inflammation is considered to be both protective and pathological, helpful, and harmful, depending on how it's defined, what tech is used to measure or assess it, and what expertise is used to interpret these measurements. There are other contradictions too. Inflammation appears to promote social withdrawal or desire for affinity, depending on context. It's a specific function of the body, but it encompasses many biological processes, making it both easy and impossible to describe with a single definition. It's today considered to fall within the specialization of immunology, but people experiencing inflammatory conditions will not typically be treated by an immunologist. So inflammation functions through interconnected feedback loops between various biomedically defined body systems, social systems, and environmental systems. And there have been calls to reframe inflammation as a homeostatic control mechanism where population level chronic disease emergence is a signal that the system is overwhelmed. So all of that has really got my attention. And out of all of that, I have questions. What is chronic inflammation as a cultural construct? What does it look like in different cultures? What are the implications of the redrawing of disease categories that it invites for policy, for health education, for health funding, and for medical practice? Who's driving conversations about the chronic inflammation epidemic and what do they stand to gain? Could reframing using complex systems concepts, things we've already used in the world of obesity, improve health outcomes? Are there gender dynamics at play? Given that this image is still used to discuss inflammation today, I suspect the answer to that one is yes. And is there in all of this a new research focus for me? So Stanley, I'm not sure if I'm prepared to take questions because that is pretty much the sum total of everything I know about the topic. <laughs> However, I'd love any comments or feedback people want to have. Okay, so one of our major projects, and when I say our, I'm, I'm really speaking um, 
acknowledging the work of Tanya Zivkovic, who's a, um, a colleague of mine, another anthropologist, but we did uh, um, ethnographic work in a community in Adelaide which was being targeted by one of Australia's largest childhood obesity programs. And this was a very disadvantaged area, one of the most disadvantaged areas in Australia. Um, and we looked at the ways in which a health promotion program, which was typically about eat less and exercise more, it was a, a franchise from a French program, was rolled out in the community. So we spent time in food banks and in community uh, over, over many months. And these are some of the findings which we put forward. Um, so that first one, Short Horizons, is about temporality and the, the different temporalities between health promotion, which is asking people to think of their futures in terms of what they're eating and how they're exercising and living and so forth. But we certainly found that for people who have, you know, very immediate uh, crises to live with because of circumstances of disadvantage, that horizons are very close and very immediate. So it's there was a real disjuncture between this attention to thinking about your future, but then thinking, well, you know, I'm trying to keep a roof over my head for the next week and trying to feed my kids and so forth. We also found some disjuncture between what people in the community felt about their bodies in terms of the uh, multiple realities or multiple ontologies of fatness. And again, that was very jarring with health promotion ideas about obesity. And we also spent a lot of time exploring the um, relatedness, the kinship around food. And in particular, we looked at this concept of sweetness of, of care. Some of that work, like we've always been heavily invested in promoting our work at policy levels. So we made a submission um, to the uh, federal government into a Senate select inquiry into the obesity epidemic in Australia. And we were really thrilled to be invited to um, to actually present uh, at, one of, at one of those um, forums in Melbourne in 2018. And I think actually we were probably the only social scientists who were asked to present there. Uh, so that, that was terrific to have that platform. Other work which we have been doing consistently is actually looking at the um, discursive narratives which appear around obesity and in particular developmental origins of health and disease and epigenetics. And we've been very critical of the ways in which women and mothers in particular are blamed and there's a very long history, um, a narrative to, uh, which is involved there. And because our work is very interdisciplinary, we've always attempted to present and publish our work in different forums. So uh, this is a paper we had in the Annals of Human Biology. And, you know, we, we attend DOHAD conferences and epigenetic conferences um, in order to open those conversations. So that's been really important for us. In terms of um, environments and DOHAD and epigenetics, uh, you know, I think this image really exemplifies the ways in which environments might be thought of as outside bodies but also inside bodies and the direction is, is always coming back into women's bodies and you can see here how women's bodies, you know, this idea of individual responsibility is, has such a strong hold in sort of contemporary imagination. 
theoretically, we've been um, pursuing some ways of thinking about what epigenetics and dyad actually does. So at a theoretical conceptual level, it's quite exciting because it does bring some different disciplines together or ways of thinking together. And so with Stanley and Vivian Moore and Michael Davies from the University of Adelaide, we developed this concept of biohabitus, which was a, um, a theoretical bridge of thinking more broadly to, to bring these um, ways of knowing together. And more recently, we've been led into um, working with Indigenous scientists who are working in epigenetics in Australia. It's quite a small group, it's quite a niche group because it's, you can imagine, you know, with genetics and Indigenous health, it's a very contentious topic. Um, but we were very interested, we, were, we started to notice the ways in which epigenetics, nutritional epigenetics, environmental epigenetics really came to uh, a policy um, platform before actually any of the science had been done. It's, it remains very uncertain and there's a lot of hype around epigenetics. So this recent study we've actually uh, interviewed indigenous scientists who are working in laboratories and medical um, centers and also those indigenous scientists who might be working with complex trauma or PTSD historical trauma on the ground in communities and asking them about their views about epigenetics and um, as you would imagine there's a huge spectrum so some people are very um, you know are very hopeful about what epigenetics can offer but then there's also a very dark history which harks back to or you know um, harks back to eugenics, so there's also a lot of distrust of epigenetics. Um, other projects which just thinking about going forward, uh, definitely COVID, uh, and we've got a project where we're looking at care and health and housing in relation to food and food, food security. So that's where I'm going to end and I would just really like to say a huge thank you for all the intellectual nourishment across the years um, from many people at the UBVO. Uh, so thank you. Megan, thank you so much. I'm sorry for, for rushing ahead. I mean, you've offered us an awful lot to think about. I like the idea of epigenetic pipe. Um, it's been fantastic working with you on uh, uh, across the years, talking with you, sharing food, of course. Um, and uh, with that, uh, we'll now move to uh, uh, Michelle Pentecost. Michelle. Oh, thank you. Sorry, didn't applaud you. Thank you. Sandy, can you see my title slide? Okay, all right. So I didn't ask any questions of Megan because my presentation moves very swiftly on from where she has has left off and that might mean that there's questions for both of us at the end. So um, good morning, good evening to everyone and thanks so much. Um, and I knew that Megan would give us an excellent summary of the epistemic and political stakes of developmental origins and epigenetics. Um, so thanks Megan <laughs> for kind of front loading. Um, and I just wanted to say as well that, you know, I joined EBVO as a master's student in 2012. Uh, and uh, met Megan in that year. Um, and I, I, I can't say how important that, that meeting was to my own kind of intellectual uh, journey uh, and being supervised by Stanley. So it's really a, 
a pleasure and honor to be in this forum and to be able to thank my senior colleagues again for all of those formative conversations that have led me to do the work that I'm doing. Um, mine is a little bit more speculative, as was um, Amy's, thinking a bit, a bit more about what, what I'm going to be doing next. Uh, so, um, let's see if I can move on here. Um, so Megan, has she's just discussed, there's been a huge amount of work that's looked to the early life period, particularly pregnancy as an obesity prevention strategy period. Uh, but actually, from the science side of things, the evidence for intervening in what is a very narrow nine-month window has, hasn't been shown to be particularly effective, in fact. Um, nor from a social science perspective is it desirable as foregrounds women as individual responsible agents, as we've just heard. Um, however, what seems to have happened is that instead of early life being abandoned as a time period, uh, there's a move to simply extend backwards to kind of unfold preconception and formalize it as a, a window for, um, uh, for intervention um, to prevent future maternal obesity as well as a range of other conditions and therefore prevent this in subsequent generations. Um, and within this thinking, as you can see here from Public Health England's um, schema, there's already a quite unfortunate conflation of pregnancy and preconception, um, such that all women of reproductive age are now these kind of pre-pregnant floating, uh, floating bodies. Um, so unfortunately, as is the case with Dohad and epigenetics, there was this great opportunity to consider how environments shape outcomes and how that is potentially a politically useful argument for investing in housing, education, employment benefits, livable cities, the provision of nutritional food. Um, but as Laura Briggs writes in the US contexts, and as Megan has also discussed, all politics are in fact reproductive politics. And yet, already with the preconception frame, we should be concerned about how that is going to be taken up. Um, and that has been written about a little bit by Miranda Wagner, again, in the US context, and Maurizio and Maloney and I have tried to contextualize these arguments to post-genomic frameworks uh, of this return to nature superseding, na nurture superseding nature. I'd also like to mention, though, that uh, especially this week, we should think about how this is happening in the context of an expansion of reproductive surveillance, uh, uh, what looks to be the biggest rollback of civil rights in the US context if Roe v. Wade is repealed with significant reproductions for reproductive autonomy, not only for women in US states with restrictive laws around the termination of pregnancy, but that this will have effects the world over, uh, given the possibility of the reintroduction of the gag rule for the funding of reproductive health services in countries that might have previously relied on US aid. Now, um, not only is there a potential and welcome framing of all women as reproductive vessels in this discourse, there's also quite an insidious ring fencing of the right to reproduction that excludes fat bodies in subtle and also overt ways. So, for example, in both the representation of bodies, quote unquote, fit to conceive, uh, as Kirsty Budd has discussed in the UK and as Megan and colleagues have discussed in Australia, but also overtly in the restricted access to fertility treatments based on BMI, uh, which is something that has already been discussed in, 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 the, in the, the UK, but also in the, in the US, and is certainly also the case in South Africa. And of course, this has got a lot of implications for countries with quite high obesity rates. So 
in sum, uh, we find ourselves in the year 2022, uh, quite unremarkably to my mind, thinking about some of the things, what we were thinking about 40 years ago. Um, and as much as I'd like to hope that this kind of renewed interest in preconception is going to lead to important structural reforms, it looks far more likely that we are entering a period of intense polarization around reproductive rights and that this has very specific implications for fat bodies. In the spirit of UBDO, I'll conclude with some artwork by the artist um, Martin um, Bondarowicz from Poland, where of course this is a very charged um, debate. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michelle. Um, uh, it's fantastic how you have uh, framed the, the politics of reproductive rights in relation to in relation to body fatness and bodies in general. Open to questions, please. Maciej, it's a question. Thank you, Stanley, and thank you for an excellent presentation that opened in my mind another part of what I was interested in in my own research. This is the enormous change in fertility performance in the last two generations. Uh, total fertility rates 50 or 100 years ago were on average six to seven children per woman during her lifetime. Now it's usually one to two. Is there some relationship here between the various methods of, not biological, but various approaches to birth control, control of the family size, and perhaps then shaping the epigenetics of uh, obesity? I mean, I think it's a very interesting question and interesting to, to think about that association. Um, I guess, uh, unfortunately, I can't really comment on it as I'm not a, a biologist, uh, but uh, I think it's definitely worth worth thinking about, specifically because uh, Dohad is so interested in, in women's bodies as a site of intervention, and yet only specific women's bodies, so uh, uh, to, to the exclusion of, of some groups. Uh, next question, Sophia, and then Megan. Uh, hi, thanks so much for a great talk. I'm coming from Poland, so that's something we've been living with for a while already. Uh, I wanted to ask about fathers and whether you see something, anything changes towards considering fathers and their BMI or their bodies and their biology uh, in, this, in the narratives and practices around reproduction. Yes, so uh, I'm currently working with a multi-country preconception trial and certainly they are thinking about and working with fathers in those trials as well. However, um, uh, I have a PhD student working on, on this and uh, there's a tendency or a concern that what we're going to do is just reproduce the individual responsibility narrative with men. So how do we kind of involve more people and think more holistically about families without just kind of saying, well, we'll just extend the neoliberal discourse to, you know, anyone who is capable of reproduction. So really important kind of points of intersection that needs to be done carefully. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, Sophia. Megan, your question, please. Thanks, Nelly. Thanks, Michelle, for a fabulous talk. Um, what do you think is the role for um, social scientists and also the reproductive scientists in terms of politicizing or, you know, really engaging the politics of the debate um, 
for for the for those life scientists, for those reproductive scientists, I'm, I guess I'm asking, do you see that politics at play? I mean, we talk about a lot, of, you know, in our circles, but do you see that at um, in the Dohad circles that you interact with? Yeah, I mean, I think the scientists are are sympathetic, um, and I would say. Uh, I think one of the most important things we can do at this point in time is think very carefully about language. Uh, so you may have noticed in this talk, I deliberately did not use particular words uh, and uh, come from South Africa where this particular debate ended a very long time ago, 1994 legislation was introduced around the right to termination of pregnancy. Uh, and th that had a very, um, I think, positive effect in terms of this not uh, <laughs> becoming a, a, the kind of debate that it is elsewhere. So I think life scientists have an important role to play in terms of uh, language and also straight up education about reproduction, to be honest, <laughs> because I think there's a lot of confusion um, given what we're reading about what's happening in other countries.